a good friend of mine who knows that I love to read historical biographies, especially if they got anything to do with sports, uh, recently sent me a book called The Boys in the Boat. Brand new book about the 1936 U.S. Olympic rowing team. They won gold uh, back in the 36 Olympic Games in Berlin, Germany, right under the nose of Adolf Hitler. Uh, the rowing team was made up of a bunch of student athletes from the University of Washington, and it's just an amazing story of all the odds they had to overcome to end up at the Olympics and, and to win gold. I mean, it all started the previous fall when a hundred and some guys went down to the boat docks at the University of Washington to try out for the rowing team. And most of them thought, you know, this would be an easy way to get a varsity letter. I mean, who can't row, right? If you've ever paddled a canoe down a lazy river, or you've ever leisurely tugged at the oars on a rowboat on a calm, sunny summer day, what's so tough about rowing? Well, it turns out rowing is really, really tough. Physiologists say that, that you burn more calories, you consume more oxygen at rowing than at any other sport. In fact, in a 2,000-meter race, you will expend more energy than a person who goes out and plays two complete games of basketball back-to-back, -back, except you'll expend the energy in six minutes. That's a lot of energy you're burning up. So rowing's pretty tough, and they, they took those hundred and some uh, candidates and they whittled it down to a varsity team at the University of Washington, and then they began this process of overcoming the odds. They overcame cramped muscles and rowing on stormy waters in inclement weather, and they overcame stiff competition from schools like University of California. Out on the East Coast, all those preppy schools that, that had rowing programs for years like Harvard and Yale and Navy, they overcame all those schools, ended up in the Olympics, worked their way up to the top, finally went for the gold against Hitler's team, and they won. They were champions. They were overcomers. Well, I tell you the story because we're going to look at a passage in 1 John chapter 5 today that describes how a person becomes an overcomer as a Christ follower, a champion as a Christ follower. So I want you to take your Bible, turn to the end of your Bible, 1 John chapter 5, get the uh, outline out if you would, because you're going to want to jot down, how is it I become an overcomer as a believer? And I want to tell you right up front that not every professing follower of Jesus ends up being an overcomer. See, spiritually speaking, you can surrender your life to Christ, you can be forgiven your sins, the Holy Spirit can come to live on the inside, you could join a group of raging Christ followers at a church like Christ Community Church. You, you can know that you're destined for heaven and still not be an overcomer. You, you can settle for a mediocre Christian life, never really becoming intimate, I mean intimate with God, ne never fully breaking the pattern of certain sins in your life, never accomplishing anything of significance for the kingdom of Christ, never leading anybody else into saving faith in Jesus. You, you could be like one of those University of Washington students who tried out for the rowing team at the beginning of the fall semester because they thought, why not? This is going to be a piece of cake. And I, I'm here to tell you that following Jesus is not a, not a piece of cake. If you want to become an overcomer, it's going to require something of you. And, and let me add, I think John, I think the Apostle John would say, if you don't want to be an overcomer, if you're sitting there thinking, well, big deal, then you're probably not a genuine Christ follower to begin with. 
Because genuine, this is a mark of a true disciple. True disciples of Jesus want to be overcomers. So welcome to week 10 of an 11-part series. We're almost home. We've been going through this epistle of 1 John. It's called, I Am a Disciple. And we're looking at the marks of genuine followers of Jesus. And the mark that we're going to discover today is that true Christ followers want to be overcomers. Now, if you got your Bible open in front of you to 1 John chapter 5, the verses we're covering are verses 1 through 12, 1 John chapter 5, but I want to dip into a couple of verses in the middle to begin with, verses 4 and 5. Let me read these two verses to you. As I do, I want you to circle the word overcome or overcomes. That's the theme I've said of today's text. Every time it pops up, you'll see it three times. So 1 John 5 verse 4, everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Well, only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, we got to overcome what? Call it out. The world. So who is it that overcomes the world? That's what we're looking at. What does overcoming look like? I want to paint a picture of it for you. And as I do, I want you to ask yourself the question, if you're an overcomer, is, it, is this describing you? Okay, let me say for starters, overcomers are Christ followers who are increasingly resisting the world's temptations in their lives. Okay, they're increasingly saying no to sinful habits. I mean, they're more and more keenly aware of their own sinful tendencies, whatever they are, and they're calling upon God to help them break these habits, and they're seeing some success. They're breaking some chains. Is that you? Okay, but there's more. Overcomers are Christ followers who are rising above the world's stresses. I mean, they face the same sorts of problems in their lives that other people face. Overcomers face unpaid bills or health issues or rebellious kids or lost customer accounts, over-demanding bosses, some pumps that back up, babies that don't sleep through the night. But overcomers refuse the path of the world, which is to become a chronic complainer. You know, overcomers are people who face the world's stresses and they learn to give thanks to God in each and every situation and to call upon him for strength to rise above these stresses. And their, their theme verse is Isaiah 40, 31. It says, if you'll wait upon the Lord, you'll soar on wings like eagles. You'll run and not grow weary. You'll walk and not be faint. Overcomers know the truth of this. But there's more. Overcomers are Christ followers who are prevailing over the world's opposition. They know that the world doesn't care for Christ followers, that the world is constantly saying, stop, right there, stop. You know, stop your talking about Jesus as if he's the only way to God. Okay, stop employing biblical principles and values at work, trying to run your company according to biblical values. Just stop that. We're going to penalize you if that's the tack you take. Stop saying certain things are wrong when we all know they're right. And the true overcomer says, no, I'm sorry, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop talking about Jesus, not going to stop operating according to biblical principles, not going to stop calling things wrong that the Bible calls wrong. You get the picture? Does the picture, is this a picture of you? 
Now, what makes a person an overcomer? Well, the Apostle John answers that question in the second half of verse 4 that I read to you a moment ago. Look at it again, verse 4. This is the victory that's overcome the world, even our, say it all together, four campuses, our faith. So you want to be an overcomer, you've got to be empowered, John says, by faith. Now, faith is one of those concepts that can mean just about anything to people these days. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to back up, and now we're going to start at the beginning of this passage, verse 1, work through the 12 verses to find out what John says about faith. There are three aspects of the sort of faith that will make you into an overcomer. So this is what you want to jot down. The first aspect of an overcomer's faith is that it's a well-balanced faith. It's a well-balanced faith. When was the last time you had your tires balanced on your car? You know, I I just bought a new set of tires not too long ago, and the guy who sold them to me said, now, it's really important that periodically you come in and we'll rotate the tires and rebalance them. And and, uh, so I went home and I Googled this because I want to make sure. This is kind of expensive. Is this really necessary to do? So I typed in, you know, well-balanced, and I got no further. A bunch of websites pop up. Type in well-balanced sometime. You know, you could, you could go to a website about a well-balanced diet, well-balanced wardrobe, well-balanced dog, well-balanced acupuncture, well-balanced positivity. There's a website. have no idea what well-balanced positivity is, but I'm 100% behind it, whatever it is, all right? So so I typed in tires, well-balanced tires, and I learned to my amazement that if your tires are off by as little as a quarter of an ounce, okay, in terms of their balance, it could throw off your whole car. I mean, you could get vibrations in the car, it could mess up the steering, make it more difficult, it could wear the the wheel bearings, it could uh, wear down the tire tread, and that comes with its own set of problems, it could damage the structure, the suspension of the car, Imbalance. So you balance the tires to overcome these problems. The well-balanced faith overcomes the problems of the world, the world's temptations, the world's stresses, the world's opposition. The well-balanced faith overcomes these things. So what's the well-balanced faith? What does it look like? Well, you probably know what the well-balanced faith looks like if you've been paying attention during the course of this First John series because John's been given to it to us in the form of three tests which he says every genuine Christ follower ought to be able, ought to, be able to pass. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because you've been listening. Uh, well-balanced faith is the person who can pass these three tests. There's the theological test. Okay, you know the truth about Jesus. You've dug into God's word. You know the truth about Jesus, and you've embraced it. You've put your faith in him. Okay, the theological test. You've surrendered to Christ. Then there is the moral test. You're walking in obedience to the commands of God's word. You are eager to learn what the book says and to put it into practice. And then there is the social test. You're learning how to love other people. Not just say you love them, but to love them in tangible ways. And not just anybody, not just lovable people, but we're talking about difficult people, ornery people, troublesome people, needy people. Okay, John says this is what a well-balanced faith looks like. It's theologically, morally, socially strong. And he says this again and again 
and again in his first epistle. Now, if you've been around Christ's community for any length of time, you've probably heard me teach some of the same stuff over and over and over again. Maybe you've heard me use some of the same illustrations. Does that bother you? Good. Because effective bosses, they repeat the same stuff again and again and again to their sales force. And effective parents, you an effective mom or dad, we repeat the same things again and again to our kids, making sure they get it, right? If you're an effective coach, you repeat, repeat the same stuff again and again to your players. If you're an effective New Testament epistle writer, you repeat the same stuff again and again to your readers. John wants us to get what the well-balanced faith of a Christ-following overcomer looks like. So, get it? Good, John would say. Now, let me read to you the opening paragraph of today's text, verses 1 to 5, and I, I want you to see if you can tell me which of the three tests John is referring to in each of these verses. Okay, I'm going to stop and start. So you call it out at each of the four campuses. Is he talking about the theological test? You know, which means you, you get faith right, has to do with right faith, or is it the moral test, right obedience, or is it the social test of right love that he's talking about? They don't necessarily appear in that order, by the way. So here's verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Which test? Theological test, right faith. John continues, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. Which test? Social test. How are you doing at loving other people? And he continues, you know, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. His commands are not burdensome. Which test? Moral. So obvious. Are you walking in obedience to God's commands? Verse 4, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that's overcome the world, even our faith. What is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Which test? Back to the theological test. The theological test, then he goes to the social test, then the moral test, then the theological test. He just keeps repeating, repeating. This is what well-balanced faith, the faith of an overcomer, looks like. See, well-balanced faith is equally strong theologically. You, you are getting into the truth about Jesus and embracing it for yourself. And morally, you're walking in obedience to what God, God's word commands. And socially, you're learning how to love other people. So what happens if your faith is unbalanced? What happens if you're deficient in one of these three areas? Well, you run into problems like an unbalanced tire, and you, you never become an overcomer. Let's say, for example, that you're deficient theologically. We'll take the first category. You know, you're not, you're not spending time in the Bible getting to know Jesus. Now, maybe you're strong in the other two categories. You're strong morally, what you do know, you obey, and you're strong socially, you're a lover of people. But, but theologically, biblically, you're, you're not getting into God's word. What, what problems does that create? Can you grow as a Christ follower and be weak in that area? I was reading a book, still reading a book. I'm about halfway through it now. I... Uh, uh, reference this book a couple weeks ago, but occasionally I repeat things, just so we, okay. It's a book written by a church analyst. Uh, he did a survey of over a thousand churches, 
And he was trying to help these churches determine which programs, which ministries they run are most helpful you know, when it comes to helping people grow in their relationship with God and which are least helpful. That way they could maximize the effective programs and eliminate the ineffective programs. You know what the survey discovered? That church programs and church ministries are not the most powerful, impactful source of growth in a Christ follower's life. You know, not weekend worship services, not community groups, not serving in some area of ministry. You you know what the number one growth producer is in the life of a Christ follower? It's personally reading and meditating, reflecting on the Bible for yourself. It's nothing the church does for you. It's what you do in the quietness of your home. Every day you pick up the Bible or at work or in your truck and parking lot outside work or what you open the Bible and you read it and you reflect on it yourself. Now, it doesn't mean that the church's ministries and programs are not important and don't have a contribution to make. It's just that the most important thing you can do is get into this book on your own. Now, have you ever heard me say that? (laughs) Yes, you have. So I won't say it again. I won't say, you know, that you ought to go and pick up a scripture union daily Bible reading schedule. You could get it electronically on your phone or you could pick up a hard copy at any of our resource centers and start reading the Bible on your own. I'm just not going to repeat it, okay? And I'm not going to say again how I wrote that Bible savvy series, those four short books to help you understand the Bible. And that's why I blog twice a week so you'll get into the Bible on your own. I don't have to say that anymore. I'm not going to repeat myself. Just not going to repeat myself not going to repeat myself. Okay, you get it. Let's say that you're getting into the Bible. Okay, let's say that this is your strong suit. Theologically, you're strong. But what if you're deficient morally? And what I mean by that, I'm not talking about being outrageously immoral. I'm just saying you're, you're not making an effort to walk in obedience to the Bible's commands. Okay, you're, re- you're, you know, you really dig the Bible. I mean, you read the Bible on your own. You're in a community group. Maybe you're in two or three different community groups. You listen to Christian radio, radio preachers. You take notes at weekend services here at Christ Community Church. You're getting all this theological, biblical input, but you're not doing what the Bible says to do. Okay, you're, you're not tithing. You're not giving the first 10% of your paycheck to the Lord, which, by the way, Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, he says, if God can't trust you with worldly wealth, in other words, what you do with your money, he's never going to trust you with spiritual riches. That's Jesus, okay? So you're not walking in obedience in that respect. You're you're, you're not walking in sexual purity. You're you're not respecting your parents. You're, You're not giving your boss an honest day's work. Or if you're a boss, you're not reimbursing your employees fairly. You're not sharing Christ with your friends. Lots of commands in Scripture, and you're not particularly concerned about applying them to your life. Then your faith is deficient morally, and you will never overcome the world. The same thing is true if your faith is deficient socially. I mean, you could be theologically strong, you could be in the book, you could be morally strong, trying to apply it to your life, but if you're weak at loving people, what does that mean? Well, if you you hold on to grudges, or you constantly criticize, you're a bad listener, you never think about meeting the needs of poor people by giving or by serving, any number of, you're, you're not demonstrating a love for people, you won't overcome the world. 
Overcomers have a well-balanced faith. So let me ask you a question. Is your faith deficient in one of these three areas? And if so, which one? And no, I mean for you to answer that question yourself right now. Which area is it deficient in? If I had to do that for myself, I'd probably say I think I'm much better at the theological and moral than I am at the social loving people. See, whatever God's speaking to your heart right now, that's where you need to grow. Ask God, and God, what do you want to do in me to help me grow in this way? Because I want to be an overcomer, and an overcomer has a well-balanced faith. Number two, an overcomer has a Christ-centered faith. A Christ-centered faith. I flew down to Florida last week to uh, see my mom and dad who wintered down there. By the way, those of you who've been praying for my dad, you know, a, a year ago at this time, he had a pretty serious cancer surgery, and they told him in you know, 12 months, because it's a lymphoma aggressive, he could probably you know, look forward to it coming back. And I took him to a CAT scan uh, reading. He'd had the CAT scan the previous week. He's totally clean right now. No traces of cancer in his body right now. So. So on the way down there on the plane, I was devouring this book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Great book written by a brilliant young Muslim man, a guy who grew up in a home, Pakistani-American home. His dad's a, a, a U.S. Navy officer and his tutor with regard to the Islamic faith. So uh, Nabil Qureshi, I don't know if that's how you say the name, but uh, he grew up in Islam, went to college, found himself with a roommate who's a Christ follower, a strong Christ follower by the name of David. And the two of them would have these uh, long arguments late into the night, comparing Islam with Christianity. And both of these guys uh, know how to argue. They were both all-star performers on the forensics team for the university. So they're debaters. Okay, so they'd go after it. And, and if, if, you, if you want an insider's look at Islam, boy, I could not recommend highly enough this book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. We sold out at the uh, St. Charles campus, so you may have some extra copies. We're ordering more, so leave your name and we'll get you a copy. But uh, Nabil not only presents a winsome look at the Islamic faith, but he also critiques the Christian faith, looks at the truth claims of the Bible, that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, that the Bible is historically accurate, that it's credible, it's a book that can be trusted. He examines that. that. That there's solid evidence for Jesus' resurrection. It's not just a blind leap of faith, but there's evidence. He looks at all of these, and he comes to believe these truths are true. But he's not yet ready to trust Jesus, although he knows he fully understands that Jesus is the essence of Christianity. That's what it all boils down to. It all boils down to a relationship with Jesus as your Savior and King. And Nabil recognizes that, but he, he can't put his trust, he can't surrender to Jesus because he knows what that will mean to his family. That it will devastate them, it will shame them in the Muslim community. Now, I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story. You've got to read it on your own, buy the book. I'll sell you my copy afterwards. But here's the point I want to make. And it's such an obvious point that I hesitate to make it. But it's a point that John makes in this epistle, so we can't gloss over it. Here it is. Overcomers have a Christ-centered 
faith. That's it. Jesus. Jesus is the focus. Jesus is at the very center, as Nabil discovered, of what overcomers believe and embrace. Now, as I read to you the next paragraph from 1 John 5, there's a repeating word that I want you to circle in your Bible every time it pops up. You're going to see it seven times. It's the word testify or a corresponding word testimony. Testify or testimony. Because John is emphasizing the fact that believing in Jesus, who's the central focus of our faith, is not some brainless activity on our part, that there is strong evidence for our faith. There is credible testimony to substantiate the truth about Jesus. So pick it up in verse 6. John writes, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit who testifies, there's your first one, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God which he's given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe in God has made him out to be a liar because they've not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. You circle every testify, every testimony. Okay, look at these. Let me ask, who ultimately is behind this testimony? Okay, who, who is it, John says, that's pointing to Jesus and saying, believe in him, make him the center of your life? Who is it? It's God. It's God the Father. Look at verse 10, closing line. This is the testimony that God has given about his Son. Now, God communicates this testimony, John says, through three channels. Did you pick that up at the beginning of the paragraph? Now, John mentions the three channels three times in verses 6 to 8. They might have weirded you out a little bit. Now, look at verse 7. It's the summary. He says, there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And you read that, and you go, what in the world is John talking about here? What, what is John referring to when he says that God testifies about Jesus through the Spirit, the water, and and the blood. Well, let's start with the second one, the water. God testifies to Jesus through the water. Let me ask, if you know the answer to this, call it out. When Jesus launched his ministry, what's the very first thing he did? He got baptized. The water. The water. The Bible hints at the fact that the reason Jesus got baptized is because he wanted to identify with a sinful, lost humanity that he had come to save. And so he gets baptized, and as John the Baptist pulls him out of the water, you recall what happens? There is a voice from heaven saying, this is the son I love. With him I'm well pleased. God testifies to his son at the water of Jesus' baptism. And this is a baptism, by the way, that launches a miraculous ministry. All of the miracles testify to Jesus as well. John, as a firsthand eyewitness of these miracles, says, yeah, they're for real. He records them in his gospel of John. So the water is the baptism that launches Jesus' miraculous ministry. The Father's testimony as to who Jesus is. Then beside the water, there's the blood. And I'll bet you can guess what the, uh, what the blood stands for. What is it? Okay, Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus' crucifixion. John is saying, this is how God testifies to his son. 
I think John has several ideas in mind here. You know, first of all, John knows that when Jesus dies on the cross, he does so in fulfillment of God's testimony through the ancient prophets. 700 years before the crucifixion, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, that God is sending the world a Savior. Isaiah refers to him as the servant of God, who will be pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. He would die in our place, die for us. Isaiah continues, he says, we're all like sheep that have gone astray. We've each turned to our own way. We've wandered from God. And God has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. So as Jesus is dying on the cross, it's God testifying, you know, reminding people that his testimony 700 years earlier is being unfolded in the events that are transpiring before their very eyes. But there's more than that at the cross. God also testifies through some pretty extraordinary phenomena. Like the fact that in the middle of the day, high noon, the sky turns black and it stays dark for three hours. And then there's an earthquake. Inside the, what goes on inside the temple? What happens? The curtain that, that veils God off several inches thick that says God's presence is inaccessible. That curtain gets ripped from top to bottom as Jesus makes God accessible. God is testifying to his son at the cross. And I think it goes beyond that. See, when John talks about the blood, a reference to Jesus' death, I'm sure that he's including Jesus' victory over death because hand in hand with the crucifixion goes the resurrection a couple of days later, right? When when Jesus rises from the dead, something that is attested to by the fact that there's an empty tomb that the authorities have never been able to explain, how did it get empty? And the fact that there are hundreds of people running around, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, you could look around, there are hundreds of people who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. So what do you do with all those eyewitnesses? It's God testifying to his son through the blood. So you got the water, you got the blood. Thirdly, John says that the spirit testifies about Jesus. Just a side note here. There's an Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 19 verse 18, that says if you're trying a case in court, you need to prove the veracity of your, your case by three witnesses. Got to have three witnesses. One, two, won't do, got to have three. So John comes along and he says, let me make a case for Jesus by citing three witnesses. Okay, you got the water, you got the blood, and you got the Spirit. How does God testify to Jesus through the Spirit? Very simply, the Bible says that we could have all the evidence in the world that points to Jesus as Savior and King, and we still wouldn't see it because we're spiritually blind. And we still wouldn't surrender our lives to Jesus, as some of us have yet to do, because we're spiritually dead. And dead people can't embrace anything. So the only hope we have is that God has taken the initiative by his spirit to draw us to Jesus. See, it's God's spirit who enables you to understand your need for a savior. It's God's spirit who helps you see your sin and its seriousness before a holy God. It's the spirit of God who helps you understand what Jesus did on the cross for you. It's the Spirit of God who helps you overcome your resistance, your doubts, your stubbornness, your pride, your inertia. 
and tugs at your heart until you make that decision and say, okay, okay, I'll surrender to Christ. And then it's the Spirit of God who comes to live on the inside and confirms that the relationship you've just begun with Jesus is real. In fact, let me say, some of you right now, in a crowd this size at our four campuses, some of you right now have been going through a time when you're thinking, you know, I'm exploring Christianity and it's beginning to make sense. The lights are beginning to go on. I'm starting to feel my heart warmed, like maybe surrender to Jesus is something I need to do. If that's happening in your heart, it's because God's Spirit is at work. There is no other explanation. You're not smart enough, religious enough, moral enough to pursue God. None of us are. If there's something going on in your life, it's because God's Spirit is up to it. And I'd say, quit resisting the Spirit. Surrender to Him. In fact, at the close of our service today, we're going to celebrate communion. Communion is a wonderful time for you in the quietness of your heart to say, okay, I give up. Your Savior, your King, save me, lead me. The water, the blood, the Spirit, these three witnesses are saying to you. Believe in Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. Make Jesus the center of your life. Overcomers have a Christ-centered faith. And if I could add one thought to this, when I say this, a Christ-centered faith, I don't mean you've just checked off a box. Like I did that surrender to Jesus thing. I did it a month ago or two years ago or 15 years ago. Now, I'm talking about a life that daily revolves around Jesus. You're learning how to make Jesus the center of everything you do. You're learning how to become a Jesus worshiper. You you could recall when you first started attending Christ Community Church and you never participated in that singing stuff, and now you're feeling like, no, I I want my life to revolve around him. I want to exalt him with my voice lifted up. You're learning how to bring Jesus into conversations. I mean, you could talk about the weather, you could talk about the Cubs, and now you're finding, I want to talk about Jesus. You're learning how to carry this ongoing dialogue with Jesus on through the course of the day. Instead of just weekend to weekend, on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday now, you're finding yourself engaged with Jesus. You're learning how to love Jesus. You're learning how to be loved by Jesus. At the beginning of our last elder meeting, the elders are the uh, senior leadership team of our church. And once a month, we get the elders from all four of our campuses together for four or five hours of meeting. We start with dinner together and spend a lot of time in prayer together as well. But as we're eating dinner, I said, let's just go around the conference room table here. And I want to hear from you guys. What do you need prayer for? And uh, these leaders are such humble individuals, vulnerable individuals. They were, as we went around, there were some really significant life issues that were being placed on the table for prayer. And we get about three-quarters of the way around, and we get to an elder, and he says, well, you know, this is kind of embarrassing to admit, but what I really need prayer for is to love Jesus more. And he said, you know, I'm tired of just doing the right thing and believing the right thing really want to love Christ more. I thought, wow, (laughs) I wish I'd said that. (laughs) Yeah. What more could you wish for? I mean, what what, what could be better than that? Overcomers have a Christ-centered faith. They're constantly looking for ways to make their lives revolve more around Jesus and get rid of the distractions that pull them away from Jesus and incubate this love for Jesus. 
Christ-centered faith. Third, it's a mission-driven faith. It's a mission-driven faith. One last time to the text. Verses 11 and 12, John says, This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What is your mission in life? You know, my guess is if you're a parent, the minute I said that, you're, you're thinking, well, my, one of my missions, I'm sure, is I want to be the best mom, best dad I, I can possibly be. I want to provide my kids with a loving home, uh, three meals a day, solid education, you know, occasionally even helping with the math homework, you know, wise counsel for their big decisions, spiritual direction. It's a great mission. But God's calling you to something even bigger. Others of you might say, well, my mission, I suppose it's got something to do with my vocation. Yeah, my mission is to be the best school teacher possible or the best salesperson or to be the best paramedic or business owner or landscaper or dentist. Or, or w- That's a great mission. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 23, whatever you do, and he's speaking vocationally, you know, whatever job you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. So your work, you know, whatever job you do, it has great value. You're doing it for God. It it may save people's lives. It may provide a paycheck for employees. It may shape our culture. It may help solve significant problems in the world. Your job is definitely part of your life mission. But God's calling you to something even bigger. Let me just cut to the chase here. Go back to the text I read to you, verses 11 and 12. John states that Jesus is how people access eternal life. And so those who have Jesus have life, and those who don't have Jesus don't have life. I'm going to say that a couple more times just because I want it to sink in. People who have Jesus have life. People who don't have Jesus, people you know who don't have Jesus, don't have life. People you know who don't have Jesus, don't have life. Does that suggest to you a really, really important life mission? Like, who's going to tell the people who don't have Jesus about Jesus? John states at the beginning of verse 11, this is the testimony. We've already learned that this is a reference to God's testimony to Jesus, that God points to Jesus through the water, through the blood, through the spirit. But are you pointing people to Jesus? What is your testimony? What's my testimony? If if you follow uh, the daily Bible reading schedule, Scripture Union, have I ever said that? Now, if you follow that schedule, we recently finished the book of Acts. It had a huge impact on my life. As I'm reading about the uh, difference that the Apostle Paul made in his world, he traveled from city to city proclaiming the good news about Christ. And one of my biggest takeaways was Paul was so bold. He was the initiator of conversations. Wherever he went, he's the guy who got the ball rolling. He didn't sit around waiting for someone to bring up God. See, that's what my tendency is. If you bring up God... 
it's fair game now, all right? So I could talk about God and we could direct the conversation that way. But it's harder, is it not? It's harder to bring Jesus into the conversation, to be the one who brings him up. And so in my journal that day, my takeaway in the book of Acts had been, be bold, start talking, just start talking. I wrote in capital letters in my journal. Well, like a a day later, I'm doing this trip down to Florida and I'm sitting next to a lady on the plane and she's reading a book on her Kindle. And I always like to see what people are reading because I'm a big reader. So I'm leaning over. She's reading something by Al-Anon, the organization that coaches, mentors people who've got loved ones who are alcoholic. And so I waited for her to close her Kindle and I said, oh, I see you're reading something by Al-Anon. And she said, yeah. And I said, uh, you got a friend or loved one who's an alcoholic? She said, yeah, my best friend. And I said, oh, wow, is the book helpful? And she said, well, kind of. She said, you know, they, they, they keep talking about this higher power, and I'm just not into the God thing. <laughs> Bingo! <you know? laughs> I said, can I tell you a story? Stories are a great way to do it, friends, you know? I say i got a really good friend whose life has been devastated by alcohol for the past two decades. Yeah, I really love her, and she's been through all sorts of treatment centers and secular centers, right on up to Betty Ford Clinic, you know, that's like the Cadillac model. All secular, never brought lasting help, lasting change. So, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, we helped her get into a christ centered treatment program, I said, you know, and, and she was really drawn into a relationship with God and began to memorize portions of God's word, and I said, she's been sober now for 11 months and has got this growing relationship with God, <laughs> and the plane was about to land. This was the tail end of our flight, you know, so where can you go with this? So I said, I just happen to be reading a book right now. Yeah, I usually have like two or three books going at once, and I said, this particular one, It takes each step, the 12-step program, and it traces it it back to biblical roots and a relationship with God. And she said, that sounds really interesting. And so I gave her the name of the book, and she, she wrote it down. Now, no, my fellow passenger did not embrace Jesus or eternal life at the end of that particular conversation. But I had the opportunity to point her in the right direction. And friends, that is the biggest life mission to which Christ calls every one of his followers. What could be bigger you know, making the varsity team, you know, salesperson of the month, a trip to China. <laughs> what, what could be bigger than altering the eternal destiny of somebody you know and love? Now, if you want to be an overcomer, you've got to participate in the mission. Do you have a mission-driven faith? 